I'm pleased to get to continue our series, When in Romans. This series, I've been listening to it online, and Chris did a very skillful job leading off and telling us about the background, the setting of the book of Romans, about the cultural, political, economic importance of the city of Rome, and about the church that was a little bit fragmented, about the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, and sometimes the conflict that emerged between them, and how Paul sought to come in and sort these things out. And he beautifully preached through the first half of chapter one, and then Dave Embry came in and told us a little bit about what happens to those Gentiles who do not know the law and do not know God and are not connected with belief and we saw the destructive nature of being left to our own devices and then Dave continued to tell us a little bit about chapter 2 and the Jews who tended to be a little bit judgmental they looked their nose down at those without the law and so in Paul's discourse to the Jewish population of the Roman Christian church we continue our text today. We'll be looking at chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. I invite you to follow along in your own Bibles or to look to the screen as some of the text will be presented. I'll start with verse 17. Notions of superiority. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God... If you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, and then we have a section break and we move on to the hypocrisy and the charges of it. You, then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You, who preach against stealing, do you steal? You, who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You, who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You, who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And then we continue with verse 25, a section break, and we talk about the ineffective means of belonging to God. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirement, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. And finally, our text ends with the means of belonging to God, the effective means. Verse 28, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person who is a Jew, or a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. This section of Scripture 
seems like it could branch off in many different directions and that there are a lot of things we could say about it. But I believe that if we allow the text to win and we allow the text to speak into our world today, we can draw some very important parallels between what the Apostle Paul had to say to the Jewish Christians in the Roman church and what the Word of God has to say to modern-day Christians in the Glendale Christian Church. I truly believe that a parallel can be drawn if we look at this scripture broken down into these four sections. Think back to that first section in verses 17 through 20. Now this section is all about notions of superiority. And you see, the Jews, they felt superior to others because they had the law. And make no mistake, the Jews were special because they had the law. The Jews were set apart from other people groups because they had the law. And because they had the law, the Jews were indeed indicated as God's chosen people. But superior? No. No. No, indeed. We know from a cursory look at the Old Testament that the Jew was not superior to the Gentile. The Jewish nation got into just as much trouble as everyone else. Even though they had the law and they had God himself breathing out his monotheistic decrees, it was still the Jews who turned to polytheism. This was the reason for the exile in the Old Testament. This is the problem that God had with so many Jewish believers throughout the history of Israel because they kept turning away. They were special. And they were to be set apart. And they are God's chosen. And yet, they are not superior just because they have the law. But they sure thought they were. And I wonder if it's the case that today there are Christians who sometimes think we might be superior to the world around us because we have God's word. We have God's word. May it never be. May it never be that we ever have airs of superiority, for although we are special because we have the Word of God, and imagine how special the Word of God is to somebody that wants it but doesn't have it. How many Bibles do we have lying around our houses gathering dust? There are people around this world who do not have the Bible. There are people who do not have the Word of God in their language, which is why we must be so supportive of those who take the gospel around the world and translate the Word of God into the heart language of people who desperately need to know the truth. We are not superior because we have the Word of God, but we are special. And because we have the Word of God, we are to be set apart. And because we have been grafted in, we are God's chosen but as Christians, we know that we are not superior in two different ways. We know this implicitly and we know this explicitly. Think about it this way. The Jew thought he was superior because he had the law and therefore knew what God wanted him to do and he could do it. The Christian makes no claim of superiority. In fact, just by claiming to be a Christian, you put yourself in a position of acknowledging your spiritual inadequacy. That's what Christianity is. It's a group of spiritually inadequate people who recognize that we are not good enough on our own to be considered righteous in God's eyes. It doesn't matter if we have the law. We can't follow the law. There's only one man who ever followed the law. He fulfilled the law. 
And Christianity is all about swapping our sinfulness with his righteousness. In fact, that's what Paul says in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says, now God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness, righteousness of God. Left to my own devices, I am not morally superior. I am inadequate. I am a sinful man. And so are you, a sinful man or a sinful woman. We all are. And we deserve wrath for our sin. But there was one man who never sinned. And it's his perfect righteousness that gets imparted upon us when we place our faith in his gospel. In his death and resurrection, we are forgiven for our sins and we are justified before God Almighty. It is a trade that takes place, which is why theologians call it substitutionary atonement. We substitute Christ's perfect righteousness for my spiritual inadequacy. I never claim to be perfect. And in fact, as a Christian, I automatically claim I'm not perfect. But I must be explicit about that because there are some people who think Christians look our noses down at others with judgment in our hearts. May it never be. May never be. A part of our testimony must include an explicit statement of our own sinfulness. For how else will we describe the gospel to anybody else? I am a former sinner who has been made a saint because of God's glorious grace. And while I still sin, I am not considered a sinner. I am not considered a sinner any longer. Because when God views me, he views Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness. I know I'm not perfect. I know that I make mistakes. I know that I sin. And I never claim to be perfect. And that's very, very important when we start to understand we all need Christ's perfect righteousness to cover us. Let's continue this parallel to our next little chunk of scripture, the charges of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is one of those charges that people love to level at Christianity and they think sometimes it can serve as a knockout blow. I've heard people say when I invite them to church, oh, I don't want to go to a place filled with a bunch of hypocrites. And I say, oh, don't worry, one more won't sink the boat, come on. Of course, there's a little bit of hypocrisy. But one of the things I've learned in my life, and as I tell a little bit more of my story towards the end, I just want to highlight something. I believe that two of the great gifts that God has ever given mankind to understand him and his will are his holy word and our intellectual reason. We can understand God's word because we're created in his image. And we can think and we can reason and we can process and one of the most important things you can reason out is the need for distinctions in life. Oh, sure. I suppose you could say hypocrisy is saying not to do one thing when you do the same, but that's not the charge of hypocrisy. The charge of hypocrisy only lands if you claim to be superior. So the charge of hypocrisy, it landed for the Jew in the first century in the Roman church because... For the Jew, they claimed superiority. 
They thought that they were superior because they had God's law. But then when they did the things that the law commanded them not to do or refused to do the things that God commanded them to do, the charge of hypocrisy landed because they thought they were superior. They'd set themselves up as a group that knew what they were doing and that they were superior morally to others. So when they did the same things that everyone else did, the charge of hypocrisy landed home. But it does not have to stick the charge of hypocrisy to the Christian because the Christian never claims superiority. You see, as a Christian, when I admit my own spiritual inadequacy and my need for Christ's righteousness, I'm saying I'm not perfect. I can still say not to do something, and if I sin and mess up, that is not good, and that hurts my witness, but that does not allow the charge of hypocrisy to land, because the charge of hypocrisy only has teeth if the person against whom that charge is levied claims to be superior. Well, I never claimed to be superior. In fact, I claimed to be a sinful man saved by the grace of God. So then, when I prove myself honest and I sin and demonstrate the grace of God, the charge of hypocrisy does not stand and it is not a good reason for people to discount church and not come to the Lord. For all sin. That's what the end of chapter 1 was about. That's what the end of chapter 3 will say explicitly. Everyone sins. So don't pretend you're perfect because then you can be seen as a hypocrite. Admit you're not perfect. And then when they call you a hypocrite, you can say, I never claimed I was perfect. And so there is no effectiveness to your claim this is really important because now we move to our third section, ineffective means of belonging to God. How is it that we belong to God? How do you know that you are a Christian man or a woman? How do you know that you belong to God? Well, the Jew thought that he could mark his belonging to God through circumcision. Circumcision was this wonderful outward sign that served as a community identifier and you were able to tell who was a Jew and who was not a Jew through the physical sign of circumcision. But some people understood circumcision to be that which meant they belonged to God and it was never the case. Circumcision was always intended to be an outward sign of an inward pledge towards God. Those who were circumcised were called to be different, yet circumcision itself did not mean you belong to God. For anybody that's a male can undergo the process, but that does not make you someone who belongs to God. But there is a Christian parallel. The Christian notion of baptism it is an outward sign. Baptism itself does not mean that you belong to God. Baptism itself means that you are identified with a community of believers. When you are baptized into Christ, you are letting everybody know this is the community you belong to. This is the community that you have joined. And baptism represents so much more than mere community belonging. In it, we represent the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But we'll get to that more in chapter 6 of Romans, much more about baptism. But baptism, just getting wet, that doesn't mean you belong to God because the belonging to God has to come from within. The outward signs are effective, but only if they are indicative of inward change. 
Which is why we must have the last section of our scripture today, the end of chapter 2, because it discusses the effective means of belonging to God. And there is only one effective means of belonging to God, and that is having the Holy Spirit. For there is no other inward sign than the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the glorious inward sign that produces outward fruit. When you have the Holy Spirit, people can tell. Because your life should be filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You should be empowered by the Spirit, gifted to share hospitality, to share the Word of God, to invite people to church, to administratively handle details within the church, to teach, to preach, to lead, to listen, to pray, to give. There are so many gifts. Only 19 are listed in Scripture. But the Holy Spirit does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, with or without your permission. And so if he wants to gift you in a glorious way to proclaim his word through song, that is a spiritual gift as well. And our inward transformation by the Holy Spirit can be seen outwardly. Yet unlike baptism or circumcision, the Holy Spirit also functions as the inward side. And when you have this inward sign of the Holy Spirit, we're reminded of what the Lord Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. He says, when the advocate comes, when the Holy Spirit of truth comes, he'll remind you of all things that I've taught you. He'll convict the world of of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit will be the one to testify that you are God's adopted child. Romans chapter 8 will talk extensively about this. We're just giving a little bit of a preview for things to come. But it's the Holy Spirit who tells me from the inside out, I am God's man. I am God's son. I am adopted. I have been adopted by God and it is the Holy Spirit within me who confirms the truth that his word is accurate. That Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead and that I have access to power, love, and self-discipline because of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who indicates that I belong to God. In fact, Galatians 5.25 says, since we have the Spirit, make every effort to keep in step with the Spirit. It's the Spirit who teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldliness of all kinds. It's the Spirit who helps us. And we must rely on the Holy Spirit because He's the one who indwells us. One of the things that the Holy Spirit has prompted in my life is this notion that faith is like a three-legged table. One of the great themes of my ministry, and if I preach here regularly, you will hear that phrase, faith is like a three-legged table, hundreds of times, hundreds of Sundays, because I truly believe it. Faith, the word pestuo in Greek that's most often translated into English as faith, has this notion of intellectual belief, emotional trust, and volitional loving obedience. We must believe, we must trust, and we must obey. That's what faith is. And the great litmus test for your spiritual growth is to ask yourself the question of belief. Am I growing in my belief? Am I learning new things about God? Am I growing deeper in my belief about God? Am I moving beyond the elementary doctrines of the, of the faith? And am I digging into deeper things? I do not care if you've been a Christian for 75 years. If all you did every day was study God, you would still not be able to plumb the depths of the Almighty. You will never run out of belief. 
things to believe. So you must ask yourself, do I believe God more today than I did last week? Do I believe God today more than I did last year? Do I know more about him because we were created to know him and be known by him? And if we do not deepen our belief, we are stagnant in our faith. But belief is not the only aspect of faith. I love belief. I love belief because I was able to spur belief in other people. I love to teach. I love to preach. I've been fortunate enough to teach at Ozark Christian College, the University of Arkansas, John Brown University. I've been fortunate enough to preach at the Sheldon Christian Church, uh, minister at the Prairie Grove Christian Church, and preach before you today. I love the belief side of the faith, but that is not all that faith is. Faith is trust. Do you trust that God will take care of you even when things are tough? Do you bank more on your bank than on God? Do you rely more on the government than the Holy Spirit? Sometimes it's easy for the world to place their trust in money, even though money says our trust is in God. We have to grow in our trust. Do we trust God more today than we did last year? If the answer is no, our faith has not developed and we're stagnant. We must grow in trust. But it starts with belief. And then, of course, there's loving obedience. I want you to serve. I want you to serve in the little kid area. I want you to serve people who need it. I want you to serve those in the church and those outside of the church because we have an obligation, but more than an obligation. We know what it is to fear the Lord, but we do not merely serve out of fear. Instead, we ought to serve out of love. It's loving obedience. Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And so I wonder... Are we demonstrating to the world the outward sign of our inward belief and trust? Are we demonstrating the outward fruit of the Spirit because of our inward conviction of the truth? Because of our belief and our trust, are we serving so that the world can see our love for them and our love for God? And if we're merely receiving and we're not serving, we're not growing in our faith. We're merely stagnant. And I believe that faith is like a three-legged table. And if we can grow in belief, trust, and loving obedience, we can grow deep. And as we grow deep, I believe that we can grow wide and we can reach the community around us with the truth. And that's my passion, the truth. I want people to know the truth. You can't just hit people over the head with truth like a sledgehammer. You've got to present truth with love, grace, and respect. But truth must be proclaimed. And I believe that as a congregation, the Glendale Christian Church is in a uniquely advantageous position to proclaim truth and grace to the city of Springfield, to the communities surrounding it, to change and impact lives on a true and meaningful level. I believe that we can do it. I pray that we can do it together. I have prayed for this congregation for many weeks, and I continue to pray that God will bless the Glendale Christian Church.